The next man probably needs no introduction here because he's been around for so long. But uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg actually spoke for the very first time at SCUM in 2001. And uh, he's been a friend of the ministry ever since. And now, obviously, a regular attender uh, and friend, his wife, is on staff. So at seminary, they pay $500 or credit hour to listen to what this man has to say. Uh, you get it tonight uh, at no charge. Our good friend, Dr. Craig Lomberg. Wow, this introduction's like that. <laughs> when I was a little kid, Over the Rainbow was my favorite song. But I like the modern version better. <laughs> that was fun. That was great fun. Better than Judy Garland. <laughs> Although she was cute as a little girl. Less so when she grew up. <laughs> That's another whole story. Most of my life has... Uh, involved this book that I carry around. And so Mike asked me if I would talk about the Bible and can we trust the Bible and what should we believe about the Bible and what's that strange word in the scum statement of faith that's called inerrancy? And it dawned on me that uh, one of the reasons I love, one of many reasons I love listening to Mike, is uh, he's very transparent about his life. And I realized that I've not really ever said a lot about what I did when I was a young adult. You could probably, if you've been around a while, reconstruct the whole biography of uh, Mike from the stories he's told. So I thought I'd do something a little bit different tonight and take the first half or so, maybe not quite, and uh, share some of my story as it pertains to this uh, strange, sometimes black, leather-bound book. I uh, grew up in a church-going family in a mainline Protestant church in western Illinois. And my mother in particular was eager that I learn about the Bible and about Jesus and be a Christian and so I had a lot of Bible stories read to me when I was a kid. And then when I started to read uh, in appropriately simplified uh, story form, I read a lot of the Bible stories. But uh, while they were interesting, I can't say that uh, I ever really thought much about them having any significance for my life in uh, then the 20th century. 
I went to a church that had as its rite of passage something called confirmation. And uh, I know that when that was set up many centuries ago, the idea was that uh, you studied uh, for a couple of years with the pastor, meeting weekly, at least during the school year, and then uh, could take your place as you affirmed your faith for yourself at about age 13 or so as uh, a full member in good standing. But unfortunately, in the late 60s, some of you have studied about it in school, (laughs) there were a lot of radical things happening in this country, and one of them was that a lot of mainline Protestant congregations were much more caught up in the social issues of the day than talking about Jesus and how he could make a difference in your life. And so in my church, uh, confirmation had sort of deteriorated into a ticket-to-leave church. Now you'd put in your time. That was really the first stage in my life with the Bible. Learned about it. Read a large chunk of it, especially the story form. Some of it was kind of neat. Not much more than that. The second stage began my sophomore year in high school. My best friend, a guy by the name of Don, who's making me feel very old this year because his younger son is now starting at Denver Seminary. This is not possible, is it? Invited me to uh, a club in our school that met weekly in different kids' homes, something called Campus Life. And there, for the first time, my sophomore year of high school, I discovered kids my own age who uh, thought Christianity made a difference in their life the uh, other hours of a week besides 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And uh, quite a number of them took an interest in me. Now, I was a geek and a nerd before those two words had been invented. In our era, we called them eggheads. (laughs) Which meant, while I usually had a, a few good friends. I was never in the popular crowd. I was never an athlete. I was never one who would be uh, in any running for uh, homecoming king, (laughs) nor uh, did any of the girls I knew or any who might slightly like me, were they in the running for queen. And so this was something new, especially when some of them were even seniors, two whole years older than me. And it seemed to stem from their their Christian faith. I started to get an inkling that maybe this was a little bit like what my mother described her high school group a generation earlier had been when the church was still more evangelical. But now there was a a club you had to go to, to find it at. I'd love to tell you that when I 
prayed one February night of 1971 to the Lord and said, I, I think you're in my life, <laughs> but I've never heard you talked about the way uh, I'm hearing people at Campus Life, so if there's something I'm missing, I want it, please. That, that suddenly everything changed, but it didn't. That took place a year later when a girl who had started to come to club, who was actually a neighbor of mine, we heard tried to take her life. Doesn't seem to have been a, a terribly seriously attempt. It was one of those cries for help. But it shook me up. It was the first person I ever knew at all well that had done something like that. <clears throat> and my friend Don and a few of the other student leaders in the club said, uh, we're going to have a prayer meeting. You want to come along, Craig? We're going to have a prayer meeting for Pat. A what? A prayer meeting? For a girl who tried to take her life? This never happened in my church. This was an odd new concept, but I thought, yeah, sounds like a good thing to do. I'll go along and see what happens. And what I remember most from that time was that not only my friend, but a couple of the other student leaders, several times throughout the evening, opened their Bible, found particular verses or passages that just spoke directly into the situation. I couldn't have done that if I'd wanted to, and I was a little bit puzzled as to how they could. And so I went up to three of them afterwards. And I could have sworn that they had consulted with one another beforehand and said, now, if Craig comes up and asks you this question, here's what you're to say. But, but they couldn't have. <laughs> and yet they each gave me the same answer. Well, I try to read the Bible every day. Try to study it a little bit, and when I see passages that seem to be particularly important or relevant or, or really speak to me, I underline them or I highlight them or I make some kind of a note of them, and, and those I go back to and review a little bit more often than, than other parts. And Well, there have even been a few verses I've memorized, and it dawned on me the reason the three of them all gave the same answers because that's something the club leader had been encouraging us to do. But I hadn't done it. And I decided it was time to start. So that was spring of my junior year. And uh, my friend said, why don't you start with First John? That's a nice, easy, short book. Got a lot of great stuff in it. Read it through once every day for a week. And I did. And it was neat. And then I went on to something else. And the one that got longer, I didn't read them as many times. But uh, that set me on uh, a second stage. And there have been days I've missed, but more often than not, ever since, that has been a part of my life. Then I went off to college, stage three. 
smart freshman, going to take the world by storm, especially as a, a bold, though not always tactful witness for Jesus. And I tried to share my faith whenever there seemed to be a, an appropriate opening and even in classes at times, uh, classes in the humanities and in areas, uh, the social sciences, psychology and sociology. And I went to a liberal arts college, so we had a lot of core classes. And I, I would try to, when it seemed appropriate, to say, well, you know, Jesus said this about that. I, by that time, I had some verses. And I hit a stone wall that I wasn't prepared for. A stone wall that uh, came from one prof after another after another. And it went something like this. Well, of course, Craig, you know, modern scholars have discovered that Jesus probably never really said that or did that. It's, it's just a, a fraction of what we read in the Gospels that reflect the true historical Jesus. I didn't have an answer. I, I was ready to debate them on how to interpret a passage or talk about its significance, but if they were just going to say, well, that isn't even Jesus, I had no clue what to say in response. I still remember a church history prof, one of the best profs I ever had. He could make the dullest part of history interesting, tell stories and make it come alive. And he had a grin that I thought maybe was the inspiration behind the Cheshire Cat. <laughs> you know, take the rest of the face away and just that grin is there. He was a nice guy. He was an ordained Lutheran pastor. And yet one day he said, you know, Craig, you cannot be an evangelical Christian and maintain your intellectual credibility. Well, that was a challenge. I wanted to see if that was true. I found in a very good college library a, a lot of books that weren't on anybody's reading list that uh, seemed to suggest a different approach. I had a, by that time it was Campus Crusade and not Campus Life. Today it would be Crew. Director who, uh, although he had never gone to seminary, was uh, an avid reader and uh, put me in touch with some resources in a world before the internet when all we had were books that gave what seemed to be satisfying answers time and time again, not only to the question of can we trust the Gospels and what they say about Jesus, but all other sorts of the classic questions that Christians have faced from skeptical people. I thought at one point that I wanted to be a high school math teacher. And I was for one year. After graduation, 
And that year confirmed for me what I suspected it would going in, that I absolutely loved to teach and absolutely didn't want to do it for a lifetime in high school math. (laughs) But rather something of more eternal significance. So I went on to seminary. And there began stage four. You can relax. There are only six of them. The last two are much bigger chunks. <laughs> and then we'll actually see some points that come out of all of this. At Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Chicago's North Shore, I learned about biblical inerrancy. I learned that there were countless reasons for trusting in the reliability of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And I learned a lot of other stuff, too. Enough that uh, I wanted to keep at this. And, uh, well, of course, in those days, the dream was go back to my alma mater and provide a balancing voice against all those liberals. (laughs) Not thinking that, of course, they'd never want me, because they didn't want a balanced voice (laughs) or a balancing voice. But at least uh, it got me heading down that educational track. I finished a degree. I uh, found a job at a small college in South Florida for three years. I uh, did postdoc work uh, for a year and in 1986 came here to Denver and have been in a rut ever since. Can't seem to change what I'm doing. Everybody else in my family changes, but I don't. I say it's just so there's some stability somewhere. And those were the fifth and sixth stages squished together. There really ought to be a passage in all of this. And uh, living by faith and Dave Weatherby in some combination, I'm going to assume that one might appear behind me. Yay, God. Yay, Dave. Second Timothy, chapter 3 contains what are maybe the two most famous verses in the Bible about the Bible. And if we put them in a little bit of context, Paul is writing in prison in Rome shortly before he will be executed in the mid-60s of the first century to his younger colleague, Timothy, pastoring the church in Ephesus in what we would call Western Turkey, And he's predicting that Timothy is going to have to deal with some false teachers that are going to try and infiltrate the church. And much of the letter and much of the first letter to Timothy is about how to resist, how to hold on to the truth, how to stand fast. And if we pick up 2 Timothy 3 from uh, verse 14... 
Paul is saying, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the verses we have on the screen. All Scripture is God-breathed. Some translations say inspired, but if you take the Greek word, theopneustos, theos, God, pneustos, from the word for spirit, it literally means God-breathed. They're all God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Of course, when Paul wrote that, the Holy Scriptures were the Hebrew Scriptures. They're what we would call the Old Testament. But as the New Testament was completed, and as Christians came to believe that the 27 books that they began to call the New Testament, the New Covenant of God with humanity, was on a par with the Old Testament, then they began to apply these words to it as well. Scripture comes from God uniquely in a way no other book does. But that in and of itself isn't nearly as significant as the fact that it's useful. It's relevant. It's authoritative. So one adjective about it coming from God and a whole bunch about its value. Excuse me. So what have I learned in my six stages of life? A varying different, very different sizes. Well, the first thing I've learned, and I don't want to belabor the point, is that the Bible will mean a whole lot more to you If you're a Christian, then if you're not, behold. Now, if you can't read the print on the cartoon, I don't know if that's God or St. Peter, but uh, on the door it says, no atheists. And the thought bubble above, above the guy, he says, I don't believe it. I thought that was kind of cute. I had read the Bible growing up, but something happens when you trust Christ and the Spirit comes into your life and helps to illuminate the Scriptures that gives it more meaning. If you're not a a Christian, I hope that you'll consider the Bible. Sometimes... God uses the reading of the Bible to bring men and women to himself. But sometimes it's just sort of like, well, that's interesting. 
And you may need to take the step of faith before the Bible really comes alive. At least I did. Secondly, what's to believe about the Bible? Perfect timing. Christian growth usually requires you to know something about the contents of Scripture, hopefully in a fair amount of detail. And where things don't make sense and where it looks like this passage maybe contradicts this passage, to ask questions. One of the things I love about Scum's mission statement is that part about asking questions. I've met an awful lot of people in my life who say, yeah, I was raised in the church. Some of them I was raised in an evangelical church. But I don't believe any of that now. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, but frighteningly common is the comment, you know, when I was young, I asked some church leaders, a youth pastor, a Sunday school teacher, uh, a parent, somebody else, somebody I thought might be able to help me answer some of the hard questions I was coming up with. And what they told me was, oh, don't ask those questions. Don't start down the road to skepticism. Just believe. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. You say that to people, that's almost a guarantee they'll start down the road to skepticism because they think you don't have any answers. <laughs> and sometimes they don't. Ask the hard questions. Now we live in an internet world, and there's more than books. Amazing. Amazing number of things you can find if you just guess the right thing to Google, and poof, there it is. And an awful lot of misinformation, too, so you have to <laughs> sift the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. But as you read Scripture... Get a study Bible. Read the notes. They address some of the questions. If you're ready to advance beyond that, uh, buy a one-volume Bible commentary. A lot of good ones out there. And read bits and pieces of that as you read a particular book of the Bible. Or find the better websites and use them. And, and if you don't know where any of those are, uh, talk to me, talk to somebody on staff here. There's a lot of people who can help you out. But then, to the extent that you do understand it, commit to following it, to obeying it, to putting it to the test to see if it really works. That's what I learned from my second stage in life. 
I suspect between high school and college, as brash and tactless as I was, that I encountered almost every classic skeptical question that's been thrown against Christians throughout history. And I found some answers. And I went off to seminary with even more questions and found even more answers. And that's where I learned about inerrancy. Now comes the slide with bullet points, so there's no picture. Don't be discouraged. This is the only slide with bullet points. This is the one I'm going to talk about longest, but then the others will race through and there'll be pictures again. <laughs> Thanks, Laurie. <laughs> Biblical inerrancy. What does that mean? It's in the scum statement of faith, for crying out loud. Well, it doesn't have to become some magical, mystical puzzle. Inerrant basically means without error. Or to put it positively, the Bible is completely true in whatever it affirms. But unfortunately, a lot of people have tried to make it mean other things that really can't be defended, and then people have rejected it when they've recognized that those other things can't be defended. Such as saying that the original documents that the biblical authors wrote were completely true doesn't mean the Bible's been perfectly copied over the centuries. If you were here the week after Easter when I showed the video clip of the snake handlers in West Virginia, you know that the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark, the 12 verses that are printed sometimes in a smaller font or with a warning before them saying these verses are not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, weren't in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. There's really only two places in the whole Bible where a passage that long has been added in. The other is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John, and we talked about that. Most of the time, there are fractions of verses or individual words, and if you have uh, any version of the Bible besides the King James, you'll have them there in footnotes, and, and you'll know about them, because we've known about them for several centuries now, but... They didn't know about them in 1611 when King James was written. Biblical inerrancy also does not mean that the Bible was divinely dictated in the sense of, uh, well, we know uh, Moses got Ten Commandments inscribed by God, but that's the only part of the Bible that was done that way. The writers didn't wait for giant tablets to fall down like uh, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. <laughs> Doesn't mean that they went into some kind of ecstatic trance and with ink and papyrus not knowing what they were doing suddenly <laughs> were moved to write with uh, 
supernatural frenzy. In fact, as far as we can tell, biblical authors may never have known they were writing the Bible. They sent some kind of guidance from God's Holy Spirit. Peter, writing in his second letter, near the end of the New Testament, says in chapter 1, verse 21, speaking of prophecy, a major chunk of the Old Testament, that it never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I like that metaphor, carried along, borne along. God superintended the process, whether the authors were ever conscious of it or not, so that exactly what he wanted to have written was written. But the way, the way they went about it, Luke describes in his opening verses, like any other writer of history, or writer of poetry, or writer of apocalyptic, or whatever literary genre they were writing. Biblical inerrancy doesn't mean that the ancient writers followed modern standards of precision. In a world without quotation marks or any felt need for them, it was perfectly appropriate to summarize somebody else's speech in your own words and be faithful and true to what they were saying. We still say the sun rises and sets even though we know better. <laughs> We probably aren't meant to take that kind of language literally in the Bible either. Biblical inerrancy does not mean that we treat every literary genre the same way. What do we do when the psalmist prays, as Mike has pointed out in sermons this year, pleading to the Lord that God would take the babies of Israel's enemies and dash them against the rocks. And those of us with babies and maybe everybody else too recoils in horror. What does it mean to say the Bible is completely true? It means that's what the psalmist really said. It doesn't make it right. There's all kinds of bad models in Scripture that we're to avoid, as well as good ones to follow. It just means this really happened. This person really said that. And oh, by the way, if you are feeling that way, and we do feel that way about our enemies sometimes, even if the metaphors we create are a little different, the person who can best take that kind of language is God. Because he's not going to do it. <laughs> I pleaded to Mike, well, no, he wouldn't do it either, but uh, there might be somebody who is human who would. Biblical inerrancy does not mean that we bypass all the standard processes of interpreting human words, that all verses are created equally clear. The Bible is clear enough 
to lead people to salvation and to teach them exactly how God wants them to live, but on all kinds of peripheral issues. Have you noticed Christians like to disagree? And some of that's because we like to disagree, but some of it's because there are parts that are less clear. And finally, biblical inerrancy does not mean that we don't have to wrestle with how to apply the text, what is meant to be timeless, what is meant to be situation-specific. I don't have anybody close enough to do here what I did at morning church. But we were sitting around in a circle, and Jeff Warner was right next to me, and I said, you know, there's that repeated command at the end of several of Paul's letters to greet one another with a holy kiss. And I started walking closer to him. (laughs) And then I said, now, if you were my age and had grown up in the old Soviet Union, the way men would do that, and I got really close to him, And then I backed off. I said, no, I can't bring myself to do it. They kiss each other on the lips. And the whole place cracked up. And Jeff was relieved. That's probably not the best way to apply it in 21st century America. A nice hug, a warm handshake, whatever is culturally appropriate but not Sexual is what the holy kiss was, and we need to find an equivalent. And the same is true for countless other passages. Once you realize what biblical inerrancy is not claiming, I think it's easier to accept the claim. Whatever is being said according to proper principles of interpretation by the cultures in which they were written, not making more than what is being claimed, but not making less than what is being claimed, is true. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Slide number four. What I started to learn at seminary and even more in grad school and doctoral studies and much more over the years, is something Ecclesiastes said three centuries ago, there's nothing new under the sun. Those of you who like to be dared, anybody? I'll give you a dare. I dare you to find a question that challenges the Christian faith that is unique to the 21st century. I don't believe one exists. I don't care whose blog says so. Most of them have been known for centuries. Many of them have been known since the first century. And there have been a myriad of answers proposed sometimes more than one for the same problem. Maybe you'll be convinced by them. Maybe you won't. But 
I get so troubled by the number of people I meet, the number of emails I get, where at least the way it comes across is I just discovered a brand new problem with the Bible. Well, it was brand new to them. They hadn't realized that was a problem before. But somehow that means now they have permission to chuck the faith without even going out to see if there might be a few million people that have discussed it in the last 2,000 years. And at least evaluating the answers they've given. I often get asked the question, why do so many really smart people reject the Bible? It's a good question, because a lot of them teach in colleges and universities. I sometimes hear it phrased this way, why do the majority of professors of religious studies in the state universities of our country reject the Bible if there really is a good case for it? The answer is simple. They don't let us teach there. I'm serious. With rare exceptions, believing Christians aren't welcome. In other departments, yes. About the Bible, no. In other walks of life, it would be called discrimination. Why do really smart people reject it? There's all kinds of reasons. Some have never studied the case for it. A few have, and, and they don't find it credible. An awful lot, in my experience, recognize that if they believed it, they would have to submit to it. And they're not ready to stop running their own life. Are you ready to stop running yours? Is it working if you're running your own life? without God? Then as I've continued along the way, oh, by the way, the archaeology there was just a way of saying that's one place that answers to these questions are found. Now I'm going to say something that may make the more conservative people here uneasy, but that's a good thing. We like to do that at SCUM. When I went off to my three-year honeymoon, three weeks after Fran and I were married, in Aberdeen, Scotland, called doctoral study, I discovered that outside of the American world, there is often in the English-speaking branch of Christianity a a broader understanding of biblical authority, and it doesn't always use the word inerrancy. Sometimes talks about inspiration, infallibility, not able to deceive, or reliability or trustworthiness or authority. And I realized that I had had some professors, not all by any means, who had given the impression that if you could conclusively find one flat-out, bona fide error in Scripture, then you'd have to doubt it all. What a dangerous idea. 
Is that the way you treat your friends? They make one mistake and you never believe a word they say again? What we have to do, the next slide. Beautiful. I was trying to find some picture that would suggest the basic storyline of the Bible. You have to ask, how central an issue is this? Paul says in in Romans 10 and in 1 Corinthians 15 that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is an absolute essential to Christian faith. If you don't have that, you don't have Christianity, though somebody might use the term. But what if it could be proven that the scribe to whom Paul dictated Romans was not Tertius but Andronicus? And if you don't recognize those names, they're there in Romans 16 in the greetings that we never read. (laughs) I don't know much of anything that would be at stake. Or shrimp. Or tacos. Or never mind. I had to throw in one pun for the evening. That was for Adam and Meg. It would mean that we would need to understand that what God's Spirit had chosen to do was to accommodate himself to human weakness in a slightly different way than the classic theory of inspiration. But that's not something to give up the faith over. And then finally, I've got a picture with a bunch of Bible translations on it. In most recent years, I've had the privilege at different levels of working on four different Bible translation committees and have become absolutely convinced that one of the saddest phenomena of our modern Christian world is what some have called the translation wars. No need to get involved in them. Any of the standard translations are way more than good enough to teach us everything we need to know for faith and life. One exception, the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deliberately changed some important things. Don't go there. But that's not on the shelf. I have to wrap this up. I dropped my watch. I don't even know what time it is, but I know I have to wrap it up. I want to make an offer. (laughs) If you aren't already on a pretty regular basis reading the Bible, asking what God wants you to do about your life after the section that you read, and finding yourself being changed for the better then I invite you to try it. And if there are questions, maybe you're already doing it, but there are certain types of things you're stuck on, talk to somebody. Talk to the leadership of the church. Find me, email me, whatever. We'll try to put you on to some good resources. Here's my offer, my challenge, the Blomberg Lottery. If you do that, 
oh, let's say for three years, consistently, and try to put into practice what you do understand of the scriptures, and at the end of that period of time, you say, my life has not been transformed for the better in ways God defines as better. I'm not talking about physical health or wealth or that kind of stuff. Then you tell me how much money in your entire lifetime you have donated to scum, and I will personally refund it. Thank you.